to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the, loaf, the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the, for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Good reading, morning church. Have you ever wondered... Um, if you've ever, I hope you've had a chance to share the gospel with someone. Um, and if you have, have you ever wondered, well, you know, if Jesus were to cruise around with me, say at, I don't know, Boca Beach or Aaron Affair or whatever, how would he, how would he interact with people? What, what would he say? And how would people, how would they respond to him? Right? Like if, you know, literally Jesus, if you had Jesus with you in the flesh, so to speak, how, how, how would people react? Would people believe would they say, well, I'm not so sure? Would people say, ah, nah? How do, how do you think people would respond? How would Jesus respond to them? You ever wonder those things? I, I always think that would be very interesting to literally walk the shores of Avoca Beach or walk around Aaron Affair or, you know, the shops over here in Wyoming and have Jesus with you and just to see how people would react, how people would respond. And I wonder, before Jesus, you know, sort of left you for the day, what, what would he say to you, <laughs> right? What, what, what would his caution be to us? Well, I say all of that because we see in today's text 
three words here that I want to summarize for us. Really, so today's text can be summarized in three words, and here they are. Compassion, calloused, caution. Jesus shows compassion to outsiders. He's challenged by calloused hearts. And finally, he offers a word of caution. Compassion, in verses 29 through 39 of chapter 15, calloused in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and caution in chapter 16, 5 through 12. Compassion, calloused, caution. May God bless his word as we dive into it together. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that by your spirit, you would enlighten our hearts, not only to understand, but to embrace your word. Show us the compassion of your son. Show us our sin, and then show us the Savior. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever experienced an event so thrilling, so exhilarating, that you know, the, the adrenaline was, was just pumping, you, it was, you were so just immersed in this particular event that you forgot to eat, right? It might have happened to you if you're, you know, play sport, or if you've been at a concert, or maybe even on your wedding day. Some people forget to eat on their wedding day. Um, whatever it was, when the event was all over, or the activity of the sport or whatever, when it's all done, you think, man, I am starving. I need to eat something. Now, as, as hungry as you might have been, in all likelihood, I know you felt like you were starving, but in all likelihood, you probably just missed a meal or two, maybe three at the most. But imagine if you went three days without eating anything. And when you look around, and you're feeling, a you're feeling absolutely famished, there is no Maccas. You can't pull your phone out and do menu log. There's no way you can access food. What are you going to do? That's the situation we find Jesus in with this crowd around him. He spent several days healing and teaching thousands of people. You can picture that, right? Just these huge crowds standing in line for days just to get near Jesus. And they're so swept up, they're so enamored, they're so swept up in all that's happening, they didn't want to go home but slept on the hillsides just to be near him. The only problem is they haven't eaten a thing. They're totally famished. And Jesus knows this. He's aware of this. His, his heart goes out to them. By the way, I think it's worth noting, this scene that I just described is taking place in a region called the Decapolis, which was predominantly a non-Jewish area. So as Jesus is ministering in this place, he's ministering to Gentiles. He is showing compassion to outsiders. 
Let me show you what I mean here. If you uh, come with me to verse 29, we'll just pick it up where we left off last week. In chapter 15, verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. And notice, Jesus, what does he do? Indiscriminately, he heals them, right? So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, does this story sound familiar? Yeah. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it might sound like this is a bit of a repeat. Because if you just go to the left in your Bible, just like one page in chapter 14, there's another feeding. A massive feeding. Same sort of, it sounds very familiar. In fact, let, let's just take a second. Let, let's go there. Turn to Matthew 14, verse 13. Matthew 14, 13. Jesus here feeds 5,000 people. Notice. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Now as I read, as I read, rather than just having me sound like Charlie Brown, you know, adults, wah, wah, wah. As I read, try to compare what the story that um, was just read for us in Matthew 15, you still with me? And Matthew 14. Well, see if there's some little nuances or difference here. Because it's, it's, it's gonna, if, if I lose you now, you're gone, right? You're, you're out to lunch. But so, so track with this, because the, the, there's, I think this is quite intentional of Matthew, why we have these two stories. In fact, I'm actually gonna ask you, I'm gonna open up the floor and ask you why I think, why is it that you think there's these two stories here? So right, here we go. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they do not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Wonderful passage. But just a chapter later, as we saw, you seem to have almost an identical event this second story that we're looking at today, the second feeding story, essentially echoes the first one. Why bother doing that? Why bother telling it's what seems like the same story? Why do you think that is? I mean, I'm, 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 not, I'm not asking rhetorically. I'm, I'm literally... Is it maybe because... Well, if you don't give me an answer, I'll, I'm going to throw... I'm going to try to get... I'm going to try to stick a stick in your side. Nobody? Yes? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely truth in that. He is, Jesus is the Lord God and, and he's able to provide. I mean, 
uh, in John's gospel, it says that I am the bread of life, right? So yeah, no, there's definitely some truth in that. Although, he didn't really, did Matthew need to record that twice to make that point, you reckon? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. You're not around to ask, that's right, okay. Fair enough, yeah. Anyone else, yes? Oh yeah, good, good catch. Very good catch, very good catch. In the first story, he called the disciples, hey, feed the people, you feed them, right? You give them something to eat. In the second story, you don't really see that as much. Yeah, interesting. Hey, maybe, maybe, this is where I'm gonna stick you for a second. Maybe this is just, all Matthew had was oral tradition, and based on that, he kind of he stuffed it up, and he, that's why we can't trust the Bible, because it's sort of, these are two different events. It's the same event, but he just made them into two, and he was like, oh. What are you, are you happy with that? No. No, okay, good, 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 good. Yeah. That, that's, what, that's what critical Bible scholars, liberal scholars, will actually say about this. But then what's funny is Jesus actually, when, when, you know when he corrects them, he says, hey, watch out for the, the yeast of the scribes, or sorry, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then he says, don't you remember the 4,000, the 5,000? So that kind of debunks the whole idea that, you know, Matthew messed it up. Anyway, just saying. Yeah, good, yeah, yeah, okay, good point. Yeah, one's one day, that's the, that's the feeding of the 5,000, whereas the feeding of the 4,000 takes place over sort of three days. Not in the sense that it's distributed over three days, but they're, it, it's, it's, Matthew's noting that they've been there for three days. Yeah, yeah, good catch. Anyone else? We can move on. Clark, are you raising your hand or are you stretching? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, good catch. It's probably no coincidence that they're in a desert place, a deserted place, bread comes, there's a walking, a splitting of the water, so to speak, right? Very, very good. It, it, it sort of, I, I've used this analogy before, but it sort of triggers, evokes things, right? Okay, let me just, I'll, I'll throw this up. Yes, Ralph. Yes. And the second is more about what, uh, what you're taking in, whether it be bread or Jesus. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, yeah, so a good point. So the first one is about God providing. The second one is like what you're taking in, though they were literally fed, obviously, right? Let me, here, let me check this up on the screen here just to sort of help you see the two different feeding stories, and let's compare them. So obviously there's different numbers of those being fed, right? There's different locations, um, there's even different seasons of the year. One says they set on the grass. The other says they set on like the earth or the dirt. Um, so one was in summer. One would have been probably in spring. Um, there's different supply of food at the beginning. Did you notice that? Different amounts of bread, seven, five. Uh, different numbers of baskets even holding the leftovers. And even a different word for the baskets in the second account. Now, here's what, well, you can, Jeanette, I can, I can email it to you. It's fine. Anyway. Um, so, here's where I want to push us and kind of look at these two. Is the reason that, and I think there's some truth to this, is the reason for the second feeding to show the disciples that they're a bit dense? Right? In other words, this is their Homer Simpson moment, right? You know? Oh! You know, you, you should have remembered, guys, he just did this. 
think there's some truth in that. But if that's all we take away, I reckon we fail to recognize, fail to see the broad strokes of Matthew's brush. Let me explain. Remember the passage right before this, last week? Matthew records Jesus' interaction with a Gentile woman, right? And then you have this crowd here, composed the God of Israel. And now, this same crowd of outsiders, Gentiles, is in a desperate need of food. They're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no coals. There's no woolies around. Yet, the disciples appear, albeit a little reluctant to share their bread. <laughs> Have you noticed that? To cast their bread to dogs? Let's, let's go back here. Let me... Let me Let's take a closer look at Matthew 15, 32. So Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Okay, so we just read in chapter 14, if you remember, the disciples, and, and you noted this actually quite well, the disciples took the initiative to offer up their bread to their fellow Israelites. But did you notice this time, no such offers being made. Jesus has to ask them directly for it, and remember, this crowd in chapter 15 was made up almost entirely of Gentiles, right? So they may have concluded, the disciples might have concluded, well, there's no way, there's no way that Jesus is going to do the same miracle for these unclean Gentile people as he did for his own people. Now, maybe this will be helpful here. Uh, when comparing these two feeding stories, um, Randolph Tasker put it this way in his commentary. I found this pretty helpful. He said, in the first story, Jesus seems to be concerned that the disciples should understand how utterly dependent, and this is what you guys are picking up actually, how utterly dependent upon him they must always be. If they are to do what he would have them to do, they must be in dependence upon him. Now we saw that. You guys picked that up actually, which is really good in the first feeding story. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, the people are hungry. What shall we do? And Jesus demonstrates they're supposed to be dependent on him because he turns right around and says, you give them something to eat. And in response, what do they say? <laughs> we can't. And the point is, correct. You can't. I can. If you're going to feed these people, you're going to have to depend entirely on me. That's the first miracle. But listen to what Tasker says is the reason for the second feeding, Jesus' second miracle. He says this, in the second story, he seems to be indirectly reproving them, that being the disciples. He seems to be indirectly reproving them for their lack of sympathy for the needs of the Gentile world. Starting, starting to see the differences between the two? Uh, allow me to paint a picture for you. In the first feeding story, Jesus is on the northeastern shores of Galilee, ministering in a Jewish area. And the disciples come to him and say, Lord, Lord, these lovely people here, these wonderful people, they're hungry. 
The second time around, Jesus is ministering in a Gentile area. But do the disciples come to him? No. Jesus comes to the disciples. Not to mention this Gentile crowd had been with the Lord for three days. Their food supplies are wiped out. But the disciples don't even bother to notice. They're oblivious. Jesus has to come to them and say, guys, fellas, I have compassion on these people. What's the implication there? You don't. You see, just like his encounter with the Canaanite woman, Jesus again shows his compassion for outsiders. He extends his mercy to the marginalized. And the disciples had to look beyond their family units, beyond their own heritage and familiarity, and show compassion to these outsiders. Friends, no doubt Jesus wants us to have the same type of compassion to those who are marginalized in our eyes. But if we're honest, it's all too easy to become culturally cocooned, even to subconsciously limit our mercy, our compassion, our ministry to those within our own circles of familiarity. The truth is, all of us are tempted, especially living on the coast, where we have extended family connections and established friendships to overlook or even ignore those who are different than us. We're so swept up in our own family, so swept up in our own familiarity, our own cliques, that we, be it laziness, be it selfishness, whatever it might be, we overlook or ignore those in need. But Jesus calls you and he calls me to get out of our comfort zones. He's calling us to show his compassion to those who are marginal, to those who are different than us. So friends, who are the Gentiles in your life? Who are the outsiders? Who is it going to be that you show the compassion of Christ to this week? Let's come back to this miraculous feeding story here and see how it goes down. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, which is really interesting, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Notice there, what, what's, what's going on? He directs the crowds to sit down, and what is Jesus? He's acting like a, like a Jewish host, right? Takes the bread and the fish, and then Matthew notes there, did you see it? He gave thanks. So we actually get the term, uh, the Eucharist, Eucharisto is, is the Greek word there. It's interesting. It, it, Jesus may have uttered a prayer, may have uttered a prayer, something like this, which was a Jewish blessing, like, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. May have said something like that. We're not sure, but after this prayer, though, what does he do? He distributes the food, and you kind of picture the disciples going, All right, here we go, boys. You know? And then look what happens. Look what happens. The miraculous. Verse 37. Notice, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up how many pieces? How many baskets? Sorry. Seven, right? How many basketfuls for the Jews? Twelve. How many tribes in Israel? Okay. What does seven typically mean? Completion. 
Just interesting. Could be just ironic, maybe not. But nevertheless, here are these crowds. It's a beautiful picture. They're fed. They're satisfied by the Messiah. And in what's amazing is no sooner, though, had Jesus re-entered into Jewish territory. So when this is all done, we'll just pick up the last verse here. And after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Right? No sooner had Jesus re-entered into Jewish territory than the opposition from the Jewish leaders surfaces yet again. This time you have, the opposition comes from two groups who would normally be at loggerheads, but they appear to have banded together. The Pharisees, in chapter 16, and Sadducees were like, oh, they were like chalk and cheese, really. They had very different views, both politically and theologically. In Australia, you've got the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, completely different. You've got a socialist, you've got a capitalist. Totally different. Totally different view of the world. That's how it is with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But whatever differences they had between each other, they had a common dislike of Jesus. Even though they differed from one another in their beliefs and practices, they were united in their opposition against Christ. It's been said, a common opponent can transform enemies into friends. I think we've seen that with some of the last few years, actually. And that becomes quite evident here. In chapter 16, we get to see, we get to observe this unholy alliance approaching Jesus. And they show their cards pretty quick. What do they say to Jesus? Do they come and say, wow, you must be the Messiah? It's amazing. You just fed 4,000 people, we've heard. Wow, what must I do to be saved? No. No, they come and say, show us a sign. Oh, you are who you say you are? Prove it, Jesus. Prove it. Look at chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, notice, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. If you are who you claim to be, then Jesus, well, then just show us. Show us a sign from heaven. I mean, it's cool if you need to pray about it. After all, Moses prayed and manna rained down from heaven. Joshua prayed and the sun stood still. Elijah prayed and fire came down from heaven. Just do something like that. Show us a miracle and we'll believe in you. Now, if you stop and think about it, Jesus could have capitalized on this moment here. For example, let's pretend you were there and you were Jesus' campaign manager. I know it sounds weird, but... I know it sounds odd, but let's just say you were thinking the way a political advisor would help a candidate, right? You might turn to Jesus at this point and say, now's your chance, Lord. Just give them what they ask for. It's no difficulty for you. You've already been performing miracles. Why not perform one more? That way they'll have to acknowledge you for who you are and they'll actually join us. But Jesus doesn't follow such worldly logic. What he does do, though, is a bit peculiar, if you think about it. I mean, these guys have basically challenged him. You know, they've, they've, these uh, used-to-be enemies have 
come together, this unholy alliance, and they bring this challenge to Jesus. They say, God, you prove yourself now. And he goes, a lesson about the weather. <laughs> I kid you not. I mean, if you look at verse two, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Now notice, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What's Jesus saying? When it comes to knowing weather patterns, they were spot on. But when it comes to being aware of far more important issues such as, well, I don't know, Jesus being the Messiah, they were clueless. Sure, they could read the signs that predict the weather, but they remained oblivious to the signs of the times already happening before their eyes. And basically, Jesus says, boys, you'd make great weathermen, but you make lousy theologians. Now, friends, listen, I, I, I believe there's a vital lesson here we simply cannot miss, and that is this. When it comes to believing in Jesus, the heart is the great hurdle to faith, not the evidence. It isn't the evidence which is the obstacle. It's a calloused heart. A calloused heart. Um, have you ever been sharing the gospel with someone and hear them say, I would believe but only if this happened. And when it does occur, they still don't believe. I've had conversations with people right here on the Central Coast who say, you know, if this God did X, Y, or Z, in my life, I would believe. If God showed me this, if that happened, I would be compelled to believe in him. And sure enough, these things happen, but guess what? They still don't believe. The reason is, those who seek a sign will not see the sign when it comes. Jesus had already given ample evidence to demonstrate who he was from the get-go. I mean, in Matthew chapter 4, he's, what is he doing? He's healing, he's casting out demons, healing lepers, so on and so forth. When he began his public ministry, right, he, it was always accompanied by signs, miracles, many of which, by the way, these blokes were likely eyewitnesses of themselves, or at least their friends or comrades would have been. And if you go back and rewind the tape of Matthew a little bit, remember, he's casting out demons, and what did they conclude? Oh, he only does that because he's the devil. You see their hearts? Calloused. A calloused heart is a great obstacle to faith. It's not evidence. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, God is not going to give you some personal sign he has already given his son. Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. If you want more than what God has already given, you're not going to get it. All the evidence that makes every human being responsible for their sins, all of the claims of Christ, God the Father has shown us in his word. And if you're not satisfied with that, it probably has more to do with your calloused heart than anything. But listen, the Bible says 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see? Our hearts are calloused. Our hearts, the Bible says, are deceitfully wicked. But if we turn to Christ and confess our sin, believe that God the Father raised God the Son from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from His just punishment and wrath. The evidence is there, friend. And it's a dangerous road to travel on to look for some special miracle for yourself. You have everything you need for life and godliness right here. And when it comes to obeying God, knowing his will in your life, the will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the word of God. Okay? The will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the will and the word of God. You don't need signs, revelations, words of wisdom, knowledge. You don't need those things. It's all here in God's perfect, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. So to, to go down on some track and look for some experience, that's only going to get you off the rails. Look to God's word, friend. Look to Christ. Now let's come back to our passage in Matthew. So we have these Pharisees, we have these Sadducees, and the audacity of asking for a sign is first of all reflected in the fact that Jesus, well, had already been giving them signs all along, right? But the greater insult here is that Jesus is the sign. His very presence itself is a sign from heaven. Hey guys, do you want we want a sign from heaven. One standing right in front of you. But obviously, they're not looking, are they? You see? They're not really looking for a sign. They're an evil and adulterous generation, which is an interesting thing because the, the Pharisees prided themselves on being so holy and committed to God. And in the Old Testament, when you disobey God, the Lord looks at it as if it's having an affair, an extramarital affair. That's how he looks at idolatry. He wants commitment to him and him alone. And here's the Pharisees, and they would have been like, well, we are committed to God. And Jesus says, no, you're like adulterers, actually. By, by you pushing on this, guys, you have played the harlot, you see. Look what he says. And, and by the way, no sign's going to be given to you except one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. Verse 4, come with me there. He says, an evil and adulterous gen generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In interesting. He talked about this earlier in Matthew. Jesus describes the sign of Jonah three days in the belly of a fish as a clear reference to his own crucifixion and resurrection on the third day. But the point here, the point, is those who demand a sign, when they see it, still don't repent because of a calloused heart. And notice the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? That's pretty much, it, things are only going to escalate from here. So he left them and departed. And that's the Pharisees and Sadducees. The continuation of this passage, though, 
begins in verse 5, and that takes us back to the disciples. So now we've seen Jesus show compassion to outsiders. He's been challenged by those with calloused hearts. And finally, he offers a word of caution, starting in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, here's the caution, here's the warning, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's interesting, it's interesting thought here. Clearly this confrontation that Jesus just had was still sort of sitting on his mind, right? And what are the disciples doing? They're thinking about lunch, <laughs> right? Because Jesus says, watch out, be aware. He's using it metaphorically speaking. Watch out, beware of the leaven. Now when you made bread, if, you, if, you, if, if things go sideways, leaven can ruin the whole lump. It pollutes the whole bread. And Jesus says, watch out. The Pharisees and the Sadducees' teaching is like that. False teaching is dangerous. It can ruin a person. It can ruin a church. So he says, beware, watch out. It's like leaven. But then, don't you love the honesty of Matthew, though? Because, I mean, I would have been the guy that's like, oh, so does he not... Is the, are the Pharisees handing out bread and they're, they're poisoning me? Or, you know, what's, I would have been like that literal of a guy, right? You know, like, does he mean that they're starting bakeries and we shouldn't buy bread from them? Or what, what, what's, what's going on, right? I mean, they're just, it's just so honest. They're not on the same wave, wavelength, right? I mean, look, verse seven, and they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Don't you yet perceive? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of Pharisees and Sadducees. Then light bulbs go on. And they understood. Now tell them about to beware of the leaven of bread, right? but of the teaching of the doctrine of the scribes, oh, sorry, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, this is beyond just the sheer honesty of it. I was thinking about it just yesterday, and if I said, guys, beware of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when you happen to bump into them this week at Aaron Affair and they try to te- teach you something that's just gonna damn you to hell. You need to be on guard. And you guys are gonna be like, that doesn't make any sense. I, I, I don't never met a Pharisee or a Sadducee, precisely. But what, what did a Pharisee do? Well, Pharisees, um, and it's interesting because They get a bad rap, and they should. But you have to understand, you have the Old Testament. It ends. 400 years of silence, okay? Now, during this time, guys, Alexander the Great, you guys know those names? The world is being Hellenized. It's being Greekified. And as that is happening, the religious leaders at that time look around and go, we better do something because we're going to lose our entire identity as the people of God. We're, we're, we're actually going to be Hellenized. Not a good thing. We're, we're going to be breaking God's law. This is how we 
sort of muck things up to begin with. So the Pharisees said, we need to be as committed to Yahweh, to God, as possible. And that's how they started. It's good intentions, good start, right? I mean, that, that, that's not bad. The problem is, though, is they realize, well, you know, if you give people an inch, they take a mile, right? So, so we'll just start stacking all of these rules so to, to kind of pr- protect people, to help them. They were the conservatives of the day, actually, the Pharisees. Jesus, notice, Jesus never condemns them for living a wicked lifestyle. They have wicked hearts, they're like whitewashed tombs, but they're not, you know, going off the rails. The Sadducees, though, were the liberals of the day, and I don't mean that politically. I mean like they were theologically liberal. They were loose in the way that they understood obeying God. You'd find them in some mainline denominations today, actually. People that get wish-washy, believing the scriptures. So they were the other extreme, do you see? They were quite Hellenized, and they were mainly political. They denied that there could be a resurrection. Where the Pharisees were the conservatives. The liberals, the bad guys, in my opinion, they were both bad guys, but were the Sadducees. What's Jesus say? Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Hear the point. If you're following Christ, you have a propensity to fall off the horse one way or the other. You can fall off the horse in saying God's word is not sufficient, so I need to put more rules around it and, and really feel good about myself because I've sort of set the standard that I can live up to. Or you're too loose in obeying what God has clearly commanded you because, hey, I'm free. You can fall off the horse either way. Jesus says, beware. The solid middle is on God's word alone and trusting in Christ alone because he is the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. So beware, friend. Where are you at? Do you, do you, do you tend to have a, a, a proclivity to fall off to be more of a legalist? You're kind of known for all the things that you're against? Or do you tend to have a propensity to go to the other side and just be too loose? Where are you at this morning? Beware, Jesus says. Beware of that type of lifestyle, that type of doctrine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We pray that what is true that has been spoken here today would create deep roots in people's hearts. Lord, we want to be compassionate as you were. You are the perfect example of showing compassion to those who are different, those who are outsiders. Lord, prepare us as we engage with people this week with calloused hearts. And Lord, may we heed the caution that you give to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.